Welcome, this is the Change Creator Podcast. Hey, what's up everybody? This is your host, Adam Forrest. Welcome back to the Change Creator Podcast show where we are reshaping the way we think about business and empowering change creators like you to make the world better for all of us. Today, we are going to be talking with Eric Reese and Ann Mae Chang. If you guys haven't checked out last week's episode, it was with the founder of the Buy Good, Feel Good Expo, a killer, killer conference that's going to be taking place in Toronto, April 2019. There's a lot of distributors, buyers, and all kinds of people in the sustainability space that are going to be there. So a really good networking opportunity. You might want to check out that episode with Rafiq that was released uh, last week. Lots of good nuggets in there from his experience. Um, so, guys, if you don't know Ann Mae Chang and Lee, uh, uh, Eric Reese, um, well, you should. So, uh, if you don't know, Eric Reese is the author of Lean Startup. This book created a movement, the whole MVP, minimum viable product, and how we approach the process of innovation, innovation, innovation with a business so we don't lose time and money and go broke uh, and burn out, right? So, it's about how do we do things at minimum validate. Is this like the scientific method of business, right? So we're going to talk with Eric Reese, who we met in California last year, and Ann Mae Chang. They used to work together uh, many, many years ago, and then they they parted ways and did their own thing. But now they're kind of collaborated on this new book that Ann Mae Chang did. Uh, Eric did the forward, and it is Lean impact. So taking the lean startup principles, applying it to the social impact space, it just tweaks the model a little bit. Um, and it, it's a different way of thinking. So Anne's going to speak to that side of the lean startup, the minimal viable product and all that kind of stuff. So this is about working smarter, right? So we have tight budgets um, and we can't waste time, right? So we want to do things as efficiently as possible. And we're going to get their strategies and insights about that stuff. But before we do, just one more reminder, our course Captivate, guys, this is coming out. This is the marketing secret that nobody's talking about and we're helping you so that you can connect with your audience. Um, the for, We're going to do a few rounds of the pricing on it to help make it easier for people. And so the first one kind of eases in at the lowest, lowest possible price. It'll be the lowest it'll ever be. Um, so you could stop by our website. That should be active to get the early bird VIP pricing very soon. So today is Monday the 15th and I think the doors should open today. Worst case on the 16th, this should be accessible. So just stop by changecreator.com, check it out. And there is a ton of good stuff coming down the pipeline. It's a super powerful course. So hope you guys uh, love it. And guys, stop by the app store, leave us reviews. It goes a long way. We appreciate you. Let's talk to Ann and Eric. Hey, Eric and Ann, welcome to the Change Creator Podcast Show. How are you guys doing today? Fantastic. I'm here. Awesome. Awesome. Doing well. Thanks for having us. <laughs> yeah, great. So listen, I'm excited to have you guys here. Um, I'm glad we got a chance to connect over at the conference and uh, just this past, uh, what was it, September, October? Time is flying. Um, but yeah, guys, great. I caught the tail end of your talk there and I was like, man, that's a great idea to get both of you together and really kind of dial into this lean movement that started with Eric's book, Lean Startup, and see where we could take it as business kind of shifts into this real social impact um, approach, right? 
So just to kick things off, I would love to get a little insight um, from both of you. And Eric, I'm sure you're getting sick of telling your story here on Lean Impact, around Lean Startup. But um, just give a nutshell of just kind of like what led you to even write that book, um, the experiences that kind of brought you to where you are today. If you both just take a quick spin at that, that would be helpful for background. Sure. So, you know, my my career as a tech entrepreneur was characterized by a lot of failure, especially when I did things the kind of conventional way that, you know, good management suggests. And uh, it took me a little while to realize that part of the reason for that, you know, was not just that I wasn't as good as the entrepreneurs that you you know see on TV and watch in the movies. Uh, although I'm sure that's part of it. But part of it was that the stories that we're told about what causes innovation to work are not very accurate. Mm. And that we had to develop a whole new way of thinking about how do you manage teams and how do you decide what should be in your product and, and uh, how you coordinate and measure when you're in an entrepreneurial situation, which is to say a situation of very high uncertainty about what's going to work in the future. Mm. So in order to make sense of my own experience and to figure out what to do about that, I started borrowing ideas from a lot of places, from agile and customer development and lean manufacturing and DevOps and maneuver warfare and a bunch of theories to try to put something together that, that made sense to me at first uh, and helped me in my own uh, work as a founder. Yeah. I called it Lean Startup, uh, acknowledging the debt you know, primarily to lean manufacturing, and started to develop concepts like the minimum viable product, the build, measure, and feedback loop, and the need to pivot, which is sometimes to change the strategy without changing the vision of a company or a product or an initiative. Yeah. And so that really was the beginning of Lean Startup. I didn't expect it to become a big international movement of entrepreneurs and founders and managers and policymakers. And I certainly didn't expect that it would kind of spawn this uh, really passionate and interesting community uh, that we call Dean Impact. Yeah. And, you know, my journey kind of has had this interesting parallel with Anmade. So it's been really fun to, uh, to reconnect and to start working on this stuff together. But Anmade, you want to tell a bit of your story and give your background? Yeah. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I think my my early journey was very much similar to Eric, you know, working in Silicon Valley at both big and small tech companies, um, having many failures along the way, but then also, um, you know, sort of transitioning over time to a much more lean based approach, especially with my eight years at Google, which, um, you know, is a company that's very much built on these kinds of approaches. But then about seven years ago, I decided to spend the second half of my career in the public or social sector, in particular focused on global poverty. And as I got into this new world, I discovered that you know, I felt like I got propelled back like 10 or 20 years and we're back to the same kind of waterfall development model that um, I, I experienced in my early years that we had moved beyond in Silicon Valley. Um, and yet, you know, when, when you look at the kind of problems we're trying to solve in the social sector, I'd argue that, if anything, there's higher degrees of uncertainty because we're working on challenges that have been longstanding, that are big and complex and intertwined, and where we don't have good solutions. Um, and yet, we're, you know, what I saw was that despite that, we were executing on plans as if we knew, knew the answer um, and, you know, either failing miserably or, you know, succeeding in doing the little bits that we were, but not really making a dent on the real problem. 
problem. Um, and so as I learned more and more about the space, I, I, it became clear to me that some of these techniques that, um, you know, Eric had wrote about in Lean Startup and have really been, you know, underpinned Silicon Valley success and, it's the, and the kind of rapid pace of progress that we've seen in Silicon Valley could be helpful in, uh, in driving, you know, better solutions for the social challenges we care about around the world. Um, and yet I also recognized that it was a lot harder, um, that I knew lots of people who knew about these kinds of techniques, but felt stuck um, and stymied in applying them in the context they worked in because, um, you know, in, innovating to end poverty is, um, you know, re- requires a, a lot more complexity than, than, you know, just building an app. Right, right. And it's, it's so it's fair to say that the the process that Eric outlined in Lean Startup is basically the foundation of that is applicable across the board to almost any startup. Is that is that fair to say? So, so I think Eric's uh, notion uh, or his description of the lean startup as a methodology to build products and services under conditions of extreme uncertainty really holds. So, if you're a startup company, but what you're trying to do is you know run a electric city utility company where you know exactly what you need to do and what's required is just to execute efficiently towards that end, then I don't know that you need tools like the Lean Startup as much. But if you're trying to solve a problem which is not yet fully solved or not yet solved at the scale that you need, um, and there's a high degree of uncertainty in how to get there, then that's where tools like the Lean Startup, I think, are really appropriate. I see. Okay, that's really that's helpful. And and so as, as things are, can you can you then just give a little bit of a breakdown? Um, I'll start with um, you know I actually, actually either one of you can answer this, but and it may fall into your court. Sorry, Eric. Just let me just lean into this a little bit more. And that is no problem. <laughs> the difference between then you know uh, just so people listening are clear, what is the difference between the lean impact and the lean startup approaches? I, I know you made some some adjustments to that model a little bit. Yeah, you know, I think at the core, lean impact is very much based on the lean startup model and the principles of the lean startup. Um, I wouldn't say I've done anything to adjust the the you know the methodology of lean startup so much as brought in um, stories of organizations who have figured out how to apply lean startup in a much more complex context. Um, you know, where where people are working with highly restrictive funding, where measuring impact is much more difficult than measuring you know, clicks on an e-commerce site where, you know, experimenting um, in situations where you're working with vulnerable populations has to be much more thoughtful. And so how do we, uh, you know, adjust these tools so that they work um, within these kinds of constraints that we work in? I think the one kind of addition that I um, kind of introduced in the Lean Impact book is, you know, Eric talks about in Lean Startup that that what we want to do is identify you know, our riskiest assumptions, the hypotheses that we need to test early on that may cause our solution to fail. And he, he talks about, you know, the two big buckets, um, in, you know, for a typical business startup would be the value hypothesis and the growth hypothesis. You know, one is, is this something that people will want and demand? And the other is, is there a driver that will allow us to accelerate growth, to scale, to, um, you know, serve the, the audience that we want to reach? Um, for Lean Impact, I add a third type of hypothesis, which is the 
the impact hypothesis. Because if you're trying, if you're seeking social impact, it's not enough to have people want what you have and be able to get it out to them, but you also need to deliver a social benefit. And so that's a third hypothesis that you need to test when you're seeking impact. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah, that makes sense. And Eric, just from your perspective, um, you know, you kind of layered in this scientific approach, which I love having the, the scientific approach applied to, it could be almost anything, the economic system, businesses, and, and just from your perspective, why is it important to take a scientific approach when operating a business? You know, it's funny because in almost any other walk of life, we don't even bother asking that question anymore. Just imagine if we were like, why is it important to take a scientific approach, you know, when running a chemistry lab or right. you know, doing anything that, that matters? Like the last few hundred years have been pretty good to the idea that the scientific method can help us discover new and useful knowledge um, and put it to work. So for some reason in business context, we, we don't use that approach, even though it's been uh, it's you know, the test of time now uh, for, for quite a while. And even in a lot of organizations where the underlying work that the business manages involves a tremendous amount of scientific thinking. So in engineering-driven organizations and science-driven organizations, research organizations, even a lot of finance-driven organizations, the idea of rigorous analysis of database decision-making and, yes, the actual scientific method like in the lab are considered essential. And yet that doesn't actually... Um, it doesn't get integrated into the boardroom conversations. It doesn't get integrated into the business decisions, which I think in the future, people are going to look back on our era and find that really strange. So part of this is just having one consistent approach to all the work that we do. Yeah. And in particular, for the kinds of business decisions that dominate in the 21st century, decisions like going into a new market, dealing with a new competitor, trying to drive some kind of innovation, where we're, we're not only like kind of generally being worried about an uncertainty like, oh gosh, how do you predict the future? It's much more specific. We're actually dealing with a situation where we are, we ourselves are trying to change the conditions on the ground in ways that are deliberately unpredictable. Like we don't, we're not content with the level of market share that we have. We're not content with the level of customer satisfaction we have. So we're going to try something different. So we're actually the cause of the uncertainty that then makes our forecasting really difficult. And as MA said, even more so when we get into the kind of large-scale humanitarian challenges you know, that we tackle in the social sector, where there can be multiple intersecting causes of uncertainty all at once. Yeah. So, so the more the more uncertain, the more difficult, the more urgent we both think it is to use a scientific approach. Yeah, yeah and just if I could add to that a sure. little bit, you know, what's fascinating to me is, you know, I think techniques like the Lean Startup have really been fairly widely adopted now in business, although there's still room to go. Um, but what's fascinating is that some of the same people who are using Lean Startup in business and, you know, taking a scientific approach and, and seeing the value of that, when it comes to the, their philanthropy, their work in the charitable space, Space, it's almost like all of that knowledge goes out the window. Um, there's a quote in my book that um, from a, a woman in South Africa named Nicole, Nicola, who says that the same people who are chasing elephants in the private sector are chasing mice in the social sector. <laughs> you, know, you know that that somehow, like when we get to thinking about how we do good in the world, all these tools that we have at our, at our disposal, even if we're well versed in them, um, get left by the wayside, and we we kind of you know we're led by 
by good intentions, but we're not using the scientific method and the value of that to accelerate our learning to figure out not only how do we do some good, but how do we maximize the social benefit that we're creating with the work that we're doing? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great um, point that you just made. And I I feel like there's also something to be said for people understanding that they should be taking this type of process and systematic approach to, you know, one of the things I caught in your talk is that you said that taking this approach can uncover these blind spots or gaps, right, in the business. Um, And even when people know it, the actual application of it sometimes can be difficult. So, Anne, you've interviewed over 200 people for your latest book, Lean Impact. I'm just curious, have you found um, anything that was like a consistent challenge for people in creating a process that gave them this feedback loop? And, And Eric, you could chime in if you have thoughts too from your side and experience, but I'd like to just hear on that social impact side. Yeah, absolutely. I think there were numerous challenges. Some of the most common, uh, you know, the, the most common one that came up is the nature of funding. For people who don't work in the social sector, they may not uh, be aware that a lot of the funding that comes into organizations who are trying to do good um, is highly restrictive, that you have to come up with, you know, a detailed plan adv- advance, often planned down to the penny of exactly what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. And then you're, you know, if you get awarded a grant, then you're expected to execute faithfully to that plan. So sort of the opposite of what you'd need to take a lean approach. You know, it's very rigid. It's very difficult to experiment, to pivot, to to do anything different than the original plan that you came up with. And and in fact, some of the saddest stories I've heard are of many organizations who, you know, have come up with these plans, have been awarded grants, started executing, discovered that what they're doing didn't work, and kept doing it anyway because they had a contract essentially to do so and it was too painful to go back and try to renegotiate. Um, And so that nature of funding, I think, is one of the biggest challenges. Um, I think some of the other challenges are that you have two customers. In the business world, um, feedback loops are are much easier because usually your customer is the one who's paying for your product or service. So you have a natural feedback loop. If you offer a product or service that they don't want, they don't buy it, and you figure out very quickly that you're on the wrong path. Um, Whereas in the social sector, you know, often you have a funder, you know, either donors or foundations that are paying for the work, and then you have recipients or beneficiaries who are receiving it, um, and those two are disconnected and have different interests, and so the feedback loop gets much more complicated. Yeah. Um, of course, you know, measuring impact is is always a big challenge depending on what you're doing, and some types of impact can take years to fully realize and are not as discreetly measurable as profits, and so it takes more work and intention to, to do so. Um, I think it's very much possible, um, but it does require greater investment than it does to just simply measure your profits. Um, yeah. And so, so I think all of these combine, and I, I think on top of all that is is culture, that I think uh, in the social sector, there is, uh, you know, the culture is not one, oftentimes, at least in most organizations, of, um, you know, question each other, like sort of playing devil's advocate, trying to, you know, drive for the most efficient solution that we're very much led by trying to do good. And so we're, we're looking for something that does some good. Um, and, you know, patting each other on the back and encouraging each other because we're dedicating our money and our lives to trying to do something to help others. Um, and, and somehow that stymies people from asking the tough questions to say, like, could you do better? Yeah. Yeah. Eric, anything you want to add there? Well, I think it's important and that we, that we talk about some of the specifics about how this works and what it looks like. And one of the things that I think is so extraordinary about Emma's book is the work that she did to really interview 
talk to you know a whole range of folks who are actually doing this in the field not to mention the experience she had firsthand so yeah. i mean you want, you want to tell a few stories from the book Sure. I mean, one one example I think that stood out that, that uh, is an organization that Eric also worked with called Summit Public Schools, um, and and they're sort of um, you know, emblematic in some ways of the kind of or you know the, the sort of contrast between how traditional nonprofits work and and the sort of lean approach that we want to uh, that we hope to see more and more of. Um, when Summit Public Schools started out, they brought together um, they wanted to Diane Tavener, who started pu- Summit Public Schools, started with the goal of having Uh, be able to serve a diverse student population and have 100% of her students graduate from college. Um, So it was a pretty ambitious goal. And they started out as most nonprofits would, where they brought together the best practices that they could find, started up a a few charter schools, um, ran those charter schools, and then eight years later, when their first cohort graduated from college, they achieved dramatically better results than their peers. And so they were getting all sorts of recognition. Um, People were encouraging them to scale their model because it was working so well. Um, and what what differentiated Summit is that Diane stepped back and said, yes, we're doing well, but we could do better. Um, we're, we're not yet at 100%. And so, you know, that th- we, we shouldn't, you know, uh, we should s- still stick with that goal and, th- and figure out how to get there. But at the same time, we can't afford to go back and tweak our model and wait another eight years for the next cohort to, to graduate. Um, you know, that would that's just like too, too long a feedback loop. Yeah. So instead, what she did was focus on looking at how do we build a culture of innovation um, into the organization or culture culture of iteration and innovation. And and so instead they they built a platform they they figured out a way to uh, on a weekly basis be able to run student assessments to understand how well students were learning to gather um, to to gather more subjective data through focus groups together teacher evaluations and be able to experiment by running uh, variations of you know their their classroom over a year long period on a weekly basis so they would vary things like you know teacher led lectures, uh, self-directed learning using uh, computers, yep. small group projects, one-on-one tutorials, and and look at what the results were on a week-by-week basis and then tweak what they did based on where, where students were engaging, how they were learning, and so forth. And so through the course of this year, they were able to really refine their uh, transformative approach to personalized learning. Um, in the last year, 99% of their um, graduating class was able was accepted into college, and we'll see, you know, kind of what the college graduation rate is over time. Um, but you know, now their their model is being replicated and adopted by over 300 public schools across the country. And so, you know, it, it, it's re- really fascinating to me to see their shift from what a more traditional nonprofit would do, a very good traditional nonprofit would do, to one that, in a space that you traditionally would think takes a long time to really measure impact, and that you know, um, you know educational attainment is one of those things that can be challenging to measure, that they found a way to do that and found a way to really accelerate their learning and uh, dramatically improve their model. Yeah, that's interesting. So just so I'm clear, it sounds like they basically created smaller milestones instead of just a big thing like, oh, we're making a sale or a student graduates. It's kind of what are the key metrics that contribute to someone who graduates? And they started measuring those as the in-between, right? 
Exactly. And the, and the way I would frame this is uh, many nonprofits are familiar with something called a theory of change that yeah. basically says if we do X, then Y will happen, then Z will right. happen, and so forth, so that we eventually get to the impact that we want. But those early you know, things, your intervention, um, so, so too often what happens is that nonprofits create these theories of changes in elaborate detail as part of their, their funding proposals, and then they sit on the bookshelf. <laughs> and so what, what this is really saying is, you know, what Lean Impact is saying is test your theory of change. Test those earliest linkages. If you think that you teach kids in this way, they will learn better. Test whether they've retained the information better, whether they are performing better in, in whatever way, indicators that you can find and optimize for that. Like, how can you improve that even further? Um one simple example I give in the book is if you're trying to reduce the incidence of malaria in a region by distributing mosquito nets, it may take years to, to be able to measure to see whether the incidence of malaria has gone down. But tomorrow, you can test to see whether people are actually hanging up those mosquito nets and sleeping under them. <laughs> and if they're not, you know, you can figure out pretty quickly it's likely not to work. And so what's the equivalent of that for whatever intervention you're making um, that you can look at early on? and not only see if people are hanging them up, but look at how you can increase the um, the rate at which they're doing so. If only 60% of people are doing so, how do you get it to 90%? Can you give them an instruction manual? Can you offer training in the village? Can you hang it up for them? Like what helps you get to the, the threshold that you think you need in order to lead to the impact that you're seeking in the end? Yeah, I love that. I love that breakdown. And it just kind of keeps like digging a little bit deeper on the most important uh, points, right? So I I think if people can just wrap their head around that, um, you can start building these systems because it, it seems so easy when you read it in Eric's book or your book and it, it, at a high level. But when you get into the nitty gritty and you're the founder and you're actually doing these things, um, there's a lot of decisions and variables to consider. So it gets a little bit more tricky. Um, Eric, I, I'm going to kick it over to you real quick, and I'm, I want to hear from both of you on this. And, you know, you both have been in the space for a long time as far as startups go. And I'm just curious, um, how would you define the role of a startup in today's world? You know, everybody does seem to lean into, well, you have these big corporations doing X, Y, and Z, or governments that manage X, Y, and Z. But what's the real role today as we move forward for, for startups, just in your perspective, like what you think? Yeah, I think that this is one of the most misunderstood concepts out there when people look at the economy and try to make sense of it, because the, the underlying economic fundamental conditions that gave rise to the large institutions we have today, you know, the specific breakdown of sectors and industries and company types have changed. Right. So, you know, not to get into all economic theory about it, but you have this, you know, a certain like natural transaction cost, a certain coordination overhead, a certain need to aggregate capital and scarce resources together and then create gatekeepers that control access. That entire economic logic has fallen open. And so there's going to have to be a really dramatic reconfiguration of who does what work as a result. And that's just going to take time to play out. Right. And I think the most the fundamental part of that is that there's now a class of problems that, that always existed, but it's now becoming more and more and more important that we may as well just consider startup problems. Right. There are problems where we have to coordinate uh, a small team to tackle a highly uncertain challenge with the expectation that it has the possibility, but not the guarantee of hyper growth on the other side. Right. So it's like pl we're like planting seeds 
uh, and some of which are going to grow very rapidly into massive trees and others nothing will happen. So it's, it's much more of an ecological mindset than the kind of old industrial, you know, robotic command and control linear mindset. And the problem like with that is that most organizations don't have the concept of a startup in their toolbox. Right. So if you say, hey, we've got a new kind of problem, but we got to throw a tool at it, they can have a committee, they can have a meeting, they can assign an executive, they can have a division. They have a lot of different tools in the toolbox for tackling it. But startup is not yet, for most organizations, one of them. And as a result, in order to tackle startup-type problems, people either have to go underground and do it in secret, or they have to quit, raise venture capital, and form a true external startup. And that has a lot of transaction costs and inefficiency assigned to it. So I think what needs to happen is that we have, as a society, we're going to have to kind of take a big macro view that a high percentage of the work that needs to be done in the economy today needs to be done by startup-type teams. And then we have to have an all-hands-on-deck approach to figuring out how do we manage the fact that there's going to be a lot more entrepreneurial activity than ever before. How do we make it easier and more accessible to start a startup? How do we make it possible for social entrepreneurs uh, to use the latest and best startup techniques? How do we make it possible for corporate entrepreneurs in for-profit companies to access this? How do we make that possible in government agencies? How do we make that possible uh, in NGOs and so on? So it's not just about uh, corporate entrepreneurs. It's not just about having more garage entrepreneurs. It's having a society-wide recognition that entrepreneurship is an increasingly important part of the economy, period. Love that. Yeah. And any other thoughts that you might want to share? Yeah, I, I totally agree with what Eric said. And just to add another dimension to it, um, you know, when I was growing up, it used to be that nonprofits did good and companies made money. Um, and and what's really exciting to me is that that dichotomy is starting to blur. That you know, today we're seeing more more and more nonprofits really looking at how to become financially self sustaining in order to be able to scale and do more good. And we're seeing more and more companies being pressured by their shareholders by their um, customers, by their employees to do more and more good. And so uh, what I found in the interviews I did for the book is that the most interesting work is happening at that intersection of, you know, whether you're a for-profit or a non-profit, and and a lot of this is where the social enterprise space works, is that, you know, you have these hybrid organizations that have some characteristics of for-profits and some characteristics of non-profits um, that are really bringing the best of both tool sets yeah. to the challenges in the world. And, and it, 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 you know, one of the things I think Eric is doing today that I think is exciting in this regard is his new startup, um, the Long-Term Stock Exchange, where he's working with, you know, creating the the structures where companies can really take that longer term view and not just worry about um, their, you know, their quarterly profits, but really looking at their longer term co- contribution to society. Yeah. And, and Eric maybe can say a little bit more about that. I'm not sure if I completely mischaracterized <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Uh, no. no, no, it's no problem. Yes, we do have a new company called the Long Term Stock Exchange or LTSE. We're trying to uh, solve the problem of excessive short-term thinking on the part of uh, all kinds of institutions in our society that emanate from uh, the quarterly pressure that companies feel in the public markets. Yeah. So to create a new social contract between investors who are long-term oriented and companies that share that orientation, mm-hmm. bring investors and managers better uh, together for greater engagement, uh, kind of better alignment of interests, and therefore make it possible to uh, run organizations in a more sustainable Uh, innovative and long-term ethical way. 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. I love that. We'll have to, and what's the where, where can people learn more about what you're doing there? I'm just curious. Uh, it is ltse.com. Com. Cool. In um, in a couple of things, if you guys have a few more minutes, um, I, I love the um, when we're talking about the future of startups. One thing I always really appreciated about startups and comparative comparative to you know corporate or government is how nimble they can be, right? So it seems like over time, and you guys let me know if you agree or disagree that the larger organizations and governments, like any risk involved, they're they want to they shy away more than ever. Whereas they used to lean in during the Google days and stuff like that. They're not putting money into that risk anymore, and they're kind of shying away. Whereas now, it's like kind of on the entrepreneur's shoulders to be very nimble and able to innovate more aggressively for the problems that we're seeing today. Um, just curious if you guys agree with that kind of um, uh, thought process. And Eric, Eric, do you want to take that first? I, I'm sorry, I cut out. I didn't hear the end of the question there. I was just making a comment about how I see. I think that there's value today in um, the the way things are changing is that governments are kind of investing less as risk is approached, right? So when it comes to risk, they're not moving quick. They're not as aggressive. Whereas the startups, the really great value is that they're so nimble and able to innovate more aggressively to solve these big problems. Yeah, listen, I think there is some truth to that idea, but the like we have to be careful with these categories because you know for, we just had the Lean Startup Conference, and yes, there were some people there in tiny little startups, you know, working on everything from nuclear fusion to um, uh, there was a team that has a, a new kind of prosthetic to help people um, uh, correct certain kinds of walking uh, challenges and the phys- I mean, just uh, there was a team there that's making hats. There was a team there from Panama. There was a team. I mean, I could just go on and on about the crazy, wacky, zany <laughs> stuff that people were working on. I got I got pitched all kinds of stuff. There was a very depressing startup that's working on improving the process of divorce. Wow! And you know, everyone's everyone's working on something <laughs> for some reason that they're passionate about. But that is not the only kind of high risk, um, high reward activity going on. We had okay. people, a lot of people this year from the Department of Defense and from three allied intelligence agencies around the world who are trying to figure out how to improve procurement, how to improve uh, signals uh, gathering and intelligence in, in, a, in a whole bunch of other like really deeply entrenched problems in multi-million person bureaucracies you know, like the Pentagon. So you wouldn't normally think of that bureaucracy as a place for risk-taking. And generally speaking, people think that bureaucracies are places where innovation goes to die. Yeah, and right. they think that that the the purpose of a bureaucracy is to, is to absolutely eliminate the possibility of risk. But the confounding thing about the world we live in today is oftentimes taking a low-risk, no-risk approach is actually very risky. Because that the presupposition of all that line of thinking and all those management techniques is that we know what risk is. We know risk when we see it. So when we are, you know, when we have adversaries who are trying to stop what we're doing, whether we're talking about a military context or a business context or in, in an NGO, like if, if there's somebody else who's trying to work at cross purposes with our theory of change, well, then we can't just sit still. That's not an option. That's not actually a low risk way to go about it. And you see that in military context, but you also see that in situations where corporations get disrupted precisely because they were unwilling to do anything that they perceived as risky, but their competitor did not. So I think we actually have to redefine what risk means and have a much more robust conversation about what actually is safe, what is risk, what are different kinds of risk, and then how do we manage that conversation in 
all kinds of organizations in a more intelligent way. That's an interesting point. I love that. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. You know, and, and in, I think in, in general parlance, I think people understand the notion that if you don't make a decision, you are making a decision. And I would say the same thing holds for risk, that if you don't take risk, you are taking risk. Um, and I think that that second part has not yet been as commonly understood and, and needs to be. Um, I, I agree with everything Eric said. And, and to add to it, um, I, you know, I, I think what I see in the social sector is, yeah. you know, there are, it's oh, it's often, you know, certainly some of the smaller, more nimble organizations that are coming up with ideas and so forth. But I'm also seeing some larger organizations having innovation labs and so forth that are doing this. The big challenge is the transition between those sort of early experiments and moving those things into the mainstream. I think that works a little bit better in the private sector because if you know, a, a startup company or a, there's a, a an experiment that's happening within a larger corporation, if it shows promise, you know, money sort of floods to that because people are seeking profits. Um, but I think that there's a bigger hurdle in the social sector because even if something shows promise, the social sector isn't quite as rational because it's not, doesn't have the kind of pure profit focus that the private sector does. Um, and people are instead wed to their existing solutions uh, because of pride of ownership because that's what their brand identity is associated with um, or, or because you know that, that there's a risk aversion that people want to do something that they know and are familiar with and so the best ideas often don't get picked up for a variety of reasons and so I think that's a big thing that we need to tackle in the social sector is if we come up when we when we do come up with these better solutions um, you know whether at a startup or at a part of a large larger organization how do we get them picked up and double down on them and triple down on them so that they really are able to um, to thrive. Yeah, no, I love it. And I love that just the whole conversation about risk and redefining it and then the add-on that you had there. And I think that's really, that's a whole book in itself. So I'll wait for that one to come out next. <laughs> uh, so the only other uh, thing I wanted to chat on is numbers. Um, I think a lot of entrepreneurs get hung up on numbers and measurement and they get nervous about you know what they need to be tracking and sharing with investors and stuff like that and I think you guys made a good point um, during the SoCap conference about you know what are the real indicators that people should be looking at as they are operating their companies and you know what are vanity metrics and stuff like that so um, and maybe you can touch on that for a second. Well, let, let me let me toss it to Eric first to talk more generally about vanity metrics since it's a, a term that he coined and I can talk a little bit more about yeah. it in the social sector. Sure. 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 I mean, vanity metrics are the, are the bane of all organizations and especially startups. We used to joke that vanity metrics are the things you put in your press release to make your competitors want to kill themselves. <laughs> so just, you know, that you try to make whatever makes your company sound the best, that's the vanity metric. So instead of you know, talking about something that's really actionable, like what percentage of customers in each cohort that sign up uh, use my product, which is which gives you a lot of information about whether the product is improving or getting worse. Yeah. Vanity metric would be look at something like the total number of customers that have ever tried the product, or the total number of clicks we've ever had, or hits, you know, page views. Um, I, I once was up against a competitor that would like to report the total GDP equivalent of all the user-to-user -user virtual transactions in their system. 
And the problem with these numbers is they're super inflated, and they're also very hard to tell a signal from the noise. That's kind of the idea. Now, why the press publishes these numbers when they're designed to obfuscate, that's a conversation for a different day. (laughs) But anyway, you know, and listen, you want to use them for PR, I'm not going to, who am I to stop you? But the problem is your employees read your PR, and it's very common when you see companies talking externally about vanity metrics that they're also using vanity metrics internally to try to judge which projects are doing a good job. And the way you know that this is BS is uh, you'll see teams celebrate when the vanity metrics go up, but when the vanity metrics go down, it's because of seasonal effects or some other reason that's not related to what they did. Yeah. So it's like a magic process where good news accrues to you and bad news accrues to somebody else. It's impossible to tell what's going on. It's impossible to make decisions about uh, fair decisions about how resources should be allocated. And there's no way to ever pivot. Because people will constantly say, well, we just got to do one more thing. You know, we're almost on the right track. The numbers will turn around any minute. And by the time you finally realize that things are a disaster, uh, it is too late to change. And so we really, you know, this is a a core startup idea to steer startups away from vanity metrics. But as MA has written about, it's even more important in the social sector. Right. Yeah, I think I think that in in some ways the social sector has taken vanity metrics to a new level. If you look at <laughs> um, if you look at the the websites of nonprofits and foundations, almost all of them tout the number of people they've reached or touched right. or served in some way. Um, and and these numbers are completely meaningless, right? It just it, it largely means that somebody was good at fundraising, um, that they wrote a good grant, someone gave them a bunch of money, and so they did stuff for a bunch of people. It doesn't actually say whether they made those people's lives better, or if somebody else had gotten that grant, whether they could have done even more. Um, and so I completely agree that we need to focus on, um, you know, the, these more actionable metrics that are usually at the unit level. Um, and, and just to give a brief illustration of this, you know, um, uh, one of the, the things that organizations uh, in the social sector have has, has been a big focus is this issue of youth unemployment around the world. Um, and, and so what I see a lot of organizations say is, hey, we've served this many youth, we've trained this many youth. Um, even we've placed this many youth in jobs. Um, and again, those the, those vanity metrics don't say a lot, except that you got enough throughput because somebody gave you enough money that stuff happened. Um, but we don't know if good came of it. And so one of the organizations I profile in the book is Harambe Youth Accelerator in South Africa. And they recognize that what, what they were trying to do is not just, you know, train youth or get them into a job, but what mattered was job retention. Um, and so they started measuring and tracking as part of their core metrics, you know, are the youth who are getting into these jobs, are they staying after three months, after six months, um, and which indicates both that they are doing well at their jobs, that their employer didn't fire them, and that they are in, engaging in, in, you know, kind of had transformed their own behavior such that they're, you know, on an economic path that will be positive for them. Right. And so one of the things that they discovered by doing this was that they saw that some of their early placements were in retail shops, you know, people who are, you know, check out people at the supermarket. Um, and they were seeing a high degree of, of attrition over time. They get they get the youth placed in, but then over time, a lot of them would drop out. And so when they dug into the data, what they found was that one of the reasons was that the youth just were not comfortable standing for that long. Um, it wasn't something they had expected. They, you know, it wasn't something they were accustomed to. And so um, when they learned this, what they did was they went back and modified their training to actually do the training while youth were standing um, so that they 
they, they would actually get this experience over the course of the few weeks that they were getting trained in advance of getting the job. And if it, they realized it wasn't for them, they could opt out and seek a different career path. Um, or many of them, you know, got comfortable with it, sort of shifted their mindset and then were able to then stick with these jobs once they got into them. And so, you know, it sounds like a kind of small tweak, but, you know, it's, it's when you pay attention to the real data behind the metrics that matter that, you know, of the impact that you're really trying to achieve, it'll cause you to make different decisions about how you deliver, um, you know, what, whatever intervention you have. Yep. Makes sense. I love that. Um, so listen, I'm going to, I'm going to just be respectful of your time and we'll start wrapping up. I'd like to just kind of close out with you guys telling us a little bit about what we can expect from you over the next year, what you're working on, what you're, you're passionate about. Um, can you uh, kick that off, Eric, and just let us know what, what you're doing? I'm sorry. I, I couldn't hear that one. Yeah. So I would just want to get a sense of what you're working on in the next year and what we can expect from you. Sure. Well, the long-term stock exchange is my full-time job uh, at the moment, so that's taking up an awful lot of my time. Mm -hmm. If you watch the news carefully, you should uh, expect to see um, some news about us uh, and some of our uh, public filings with the SEC shortly. Cool. It's a little sneak preview there. And the other thing that I have going on is uh, a lot of folks will remember I built a Kickstarter campaign for something called the Leader's Guide. was at the time the most successful publishing Kickstarter campaign of all time. Cool. yeah, it, it has not been available to the public since then. We just did one print run of it, but a lot of people have been asking me to produce an audiobook version. So I have partnered with Audible, and uh, we're going to produce a uh, an audiobook of nice. the Leader's Guide Very cool. that will come out, I would expect, sometime in, in the new year. So stay tuned for that, too. Awesome. Do you know if it'll be later in the year? or? Uh... Well, these things are always a little bit hard to predict. I would expect <laughs> in Q1. Yeah, okay. sometimes. So, so probably probably in the late winter or spring, yeah. uh, if all goes well. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. And a lot of hours in the recording studio still to be done. Yeah. But uh, that's, that's the current schedule. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, cool. We'll keep an eye out for that. And Anne, what about you? What's going on over next year? Well, with the, the the launch of the Lean Impact book recently, um, that's really going to be my focus. Is yeah. um, you know the, the reason I wrote the book is that I think this needs to be a movement. Um, I think in, in the private sector, you know, lean startup I think can often be applied, you know, company by company um, that people can decide to incorporate this into the way they work. But in the social sector, things are much more intertwined. You have to deal with both funders um, and the broader ecosystem as well as your own organization. And so what my hope is with the Lean Impact is to provide a vocabulary and a framework and a movement by which we can shift the mindset of the questions we ask each other and the ways that we work so that we jointly across the social sector and all of the different stakeholders in the social sector can work together to drive for dramatically greater impact. Because I think we can deliver far more bang for buck for the resources that we're expending on these important challenges around the world. Yeah, well, it'll be exciting to see how it all evolves. And I, I just love the direction that you're taking things. And obviously, at Change Creator, we're of the same mind. So, you know, seeing people make smarter decisions and make their their businesses count as a tool for something that's doing uh, important work. Uh, so we're excited to see that, that evolution of that movement. <laughs> Thank you both uh, for being here. I really appreciate the time and uh, sharing your experiences and all the work that you're doing. Our pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. And and if anyone wants to learn more about Lean Impact, they can go to www.leanimpact.org. 
Awesome. Perfect. And guys, we'll have that information for you available and uh, we'll keep an eye out. We're going to kick off the new year with Eric and Anne as the cover story for uh, Change Creator Magazine. All right. Thanks again to you both. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll uh, stay in touch. Great. Thank you so much for having us. Okay. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Your next step is to join the change creator revolution by downloading our interactive digital magazine app for premium content, exclusive interviews, and more ways to stay on top of your game. Available now on iTunes and Google Play or visit changecreatormag.com. We'll see you next time where money and meaning intersect right here at the Change Creator Podcast. 